You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Stephen Ross, a billionaire that I'd never heard of before, is a real estate investor. And like a lot of billionaire real estate investors, Ross is the owner of many things. Office buildings, yachts, sports teams, businesses you may have heard of. Like a lot of billionaires, Ross is also a fan of Donald Trump's. Because of course he is. Trump's tax cuts have made rich white men like Ross richer. And it's not like poor white men are leaving Trump rallies to go shoot up yacht clubs, right? Ross is such a big fan of Trump's that he hosted a fundraiser at his mansion in the Hamptons last Friday for Donald Trump's reelection campaign. It cost $100,000 to attend, a quarter of a million dollars if you wanted to get a picture with Donald Trump and enjoy a private and very exclusive roundtable conversation with the president. Most people I know desperately want to hear less from Donald Trump, but apparently there are people out there who will pay a quarter of a million dollars to hear more from him. The rich. They are different from you and me. Anyway, here's the interesting thing. Here's the thing that's trending on Twitter. In addition to the mansions, the yachts, the islands, the office buildings, the football teams, and who the fuck knows, the crates of Fabergé eggs or whatever else Stephen Ross owns, he owns the high-end pricey Equinox chain of fitness centers. Gyms in gay neighborhoods, in other words. Related Co., Ross's company, owns Equinox and SoulCycle. Two fitness companies that market themselves heavily to queer people, particularly to gay men, both spent the month of June smearing themselves in rainbow whore paint. Because they want queer people in urban areas to think they support diversity. Because that's good for their bottom line, which is good for their billionaire owner, which is good for Donald Trump, which is bad for queer people. And immigrants, some of them queer, and black people, ditto, and hell, bad for the air we all have to breathe, and the water we all have to drink, and the planet we all have to live on. So, the man who owns the big gay gym supports a racist white supremacist who runs the federal government and is actively attacking and persecuting queer people at every opportunity, throwing trans people out of the military, pushing to make discrimination against gays and lesbians, legal and employment and housing and adoption, so long as the bigot who wants to do the discriminating remembers to utter those magic words, sincerely held religious beliefs before they get down to firing someone. There's been some pushback. Equinox's Instagram page has been flooded with negative comments and gay men all over the country are pledging to cancel their memberships on Twitter and I hope they follow through. Now, as anyone who's ever tried to cancel a gym membership knows, they don't make it easy. They make it hard, which is why I want to draw your attention to someone who replied to Billy Eichner, the actor who tweeted, hey, Equinox, what's your policy for canceling memberships once a member finds out your owner is enabling racism and mass murder? A follower tweeted back at Eichner, point, gays, it's hard to get out of your Equinox membership contract unless you're injured or pregnant or moving. Counterpoint, gays, if you fuck in a steam room at Equinox and get caught, Equinox bans you for life. So hey, it turns out that canceling your Equinox membership isn't hard. Not if you are. Get on it, guys. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. 
And joining us on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, comedian Jacqueline Novak, star of the hit off-Broadway show Get On Your Knees, joins us to talk all things blowjob. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. East Coast straight female here. So quickly, I am twice divorced, um, both my choice pretty much. The second one got so bad that we really had to just get away from each other. So having been through that twice and recovered fine, I think I'm better off for it. But I'm in a relationship now with someone I've been with for almost two and a half years. And it's not really very heavy as far as like, we don't live together, anything like that. But we do love each other. And we are happy together, very happy together. I think I feel I mean, we say we are I truly believe we are. And this man is like, I have a connection with him like I've never had with anyone before. Um, my problem is that I feel like as time goes on or and as we get more, maybe closer and maybe blend our lives together more, I'm really afraid of getting bored and losing interest. And I know there's got to be a way to somehow just not let that happen. And I don't want to let it happen again because I do really love this man. And even if I don't feel in love every day and I don't love and everything about him or I don't think he's perfect every moment, I still want to stay with him because I think I have this tendency of jumping from relationship to relationship when I get bored. And I just want to know how I can possibly stop doing that in my life. You might want to pick up, read last week's Savage Love, my advice column. I got a question from a woman who... Married young, married at age 21, and seven years later, marriage is kind of in danger because she's fucking bored. And she feels guilty about this. She's really putting herself on the rack about it, wondering what's wrong with her. And I called in Reinforcements, Wednesday Martin, frequent guest here on The Lovecast, author of Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lost in Infidelity is Wrong, and How the New Science Can Set Us Free, to talk about this topic that women in committed long-term sexually exclusive relationships, their desire for their partner drops off faster than a man's desire for his opposite sex partner in a similar relationship. Women get bored faster. So this crisis in low, no libido, this crisis in sexless marriages is really a crisis of female boredom. And we have a hard time acknowledging that because it runs contrary to everything that we're told that we ought to believe about women, that women are the ones who are more invested in monogamy, that women are the ones who are better at monogamy, that monogamy is what women want and that kind of intimacy and security is what turns women on. And the science says no. And we haven't been studying these things for very long. Really, the field of sexology, research into sex only got underway less than 100 years ago and people only began to control for their cultural biases, control for sexism and patriarchy and misogyny a decade or two ago and looking into female sexual desire response, pleasure. And so this is all recent. And a lot of people in the sex advice, marital advice, industrial complex aren't adjusting their advice. We come upon people in sexless marriages, opposite sex couples, and we tell him, oh, if you just do a little bit more housework, she'll want to fuck you. And we tell her, oh, if you just have a glass of wine, you want to fuck him. And it doesn't work. Because it's not getting at the problem, which is boredom. Now, when I say these things, people accuse me of advocating open relationships in all circumstances. That everybody should be in an open relationship and that's how you address boredom. Well, that's one way you can address and control for boredom. 
variety, excitement, danger of being in an open relationship. Yeah, that can solve your boredom problem. That's not the only way to solve your boredom problem, but you can't solve your boredom problem if you're incapable of even acknowledging that boredom is what's at the root here of, of your sexless marriage or your cratering of desire for your partner, that it's not the division of household labor, which should be fairly divided regardless of who's getting fucked when and by whom. It's boredom. And we should tell opposite-sex couples that they need to bear that in mind, that familiarity, intimacy, the siblingification of your relationship, you're going to have to push against that. So all of this, I think, is relevant to you, caller. Been divorced twice. The more intertwined your life gets with a male partner, the less desire you experience for that partner. And you're worried in your new relationship that this pattern will repeat. And I am here to tell you that this pattern will repeat if you make the same mistakes. What you're doing right now works. You are in an intimate relationship with this person. You have a connection. You love him. You don't fucking live together. Continue to not fucking live together. That is good advice for someone with your particular pattern and your particular problem, which is common to a lot of folks. The more intertwined your life becomes, the more intimacy, the more day-to-day intimacy, the more grind of intimacy, the less desire for the grind of the other kind that turns you on, the grinding of genitals together. So don't live together. And if you are going to live together, identify boredom as the mortal enemy to your relationship that it is and link arms to combat it together. That doesn't mean you have to have an open relationship. That does mean that you have to be able to say, I'm bored. We've been doing the same thing in the same way, in the same place for a while now. We need to shake this up. Not because there's anything wrong with you, not because there's anything wrong with me, but because there's going to be something wrong with our relationship soon if we don't Go on sexual adventures together that do not necessarily have to involve other people, but could, so we don't get bored. I think boredom has been the problem in your past relationships. What can keep your current relationship exciting? That's the conversation you need to have with your partner. Exciting over the long term. What will do that? Public sex. Don't have to have sex with other people, but public sex environments, sex clubs, swingers, parties. A lot of people go to those things just to have sex with each other. They just like to be in that eroticized environment. That can fuel your fire. Getting out of the house, fucking at work, exploring your kinks and fantasies together, watching porn together. What are you going to do proactively together as a couple to combat the boredom that has undermined your previous relationships and you worry will undermine this relationship? So this is my assignment for you. This is the homework. Go to your partner and be honest about who you are and what you know of yourself based on your experiences in the past and your two divorces That when you get bored, you get itchy and you will consciously or subconsciously begin to sabotage the relationship to bring excitement back into your life. So excitement in your life. That is a project that you two are going to work on together. Excitement in your life, excitement in his life. You are going to have sexual adventures. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that together so that you don't wind up in divorce court a third time? Hey, Dan, I'm a 40 one-year-old male from Philadelphia. I'm an avid listener of your show. I'm calling in. Um, I've got a, a dumping fucker already question. Um, I've been involved with a woman uh, for almost five years now. We have a three-year-old. And each day that goes by, I realize I am living with a narcissist. Everything is about her, Dan. Uh, she frequently quits jobs. She uh, drinks heavily. She's really mean. 
we have a three-year-old, and that is the only thing holding me here in the house. You know, it's tough being a guy and being in a situation where you feel like you're being taken advantage of, even borderline being abused. But uh, give some advice, Dan. I mean, what should I do here? I, you know, I don't want to abandon my child, and she has promised to put up a heck of a fight. But I don't want to live in misery anymore either. I mean, should I just dump this woman and move on and, and try to figure it out from there? Should we try counseling or, uh, I mean, someone that's such a narcissist? I mean, will that even work? When people say you should try counseling, they usually mean you should try counseling. Maybe counseling will help save the relationship. But you can also see a counselor to negotiate the end of a relationship, to have someone act as the facilitator, the referee, as you talk about how you are going to terminate this relationship, how you're going to divorce if you're married or how you're going to separate or move out if you're not married in as amicable a fashion as possible. So yes, I would encourage you to try a little counseling, but what you need to do with the counselor, not negotiate the terms of your surrender, but negotiate the terms of your release. And the person who needs to be the focus of this conversation, really your first priority and your narcissistic partner's first priority is your child. Now a narcissist can be vengeful. Narcissists often take hostages and you are in a terrible situation where the obvious hostage your partner can take if they are abusive and terrible is this child. And your partner may attempt to use this child as a lever to control you and keep you in the relationship by threatening to abuse the child, threatening to limit your time or access to this child, which is another way of abusing that child. And you then have to be prepared to march into court, sue for custody, or have the custody arrangement hammered out in court. you got to be prepared for that. And I don't mean just psychologically prepared for that. I mean prepared, prepared for that. You need to be documenting now your partner's abusive behavior. You need to make notes after your counseling sessions about how they go. You need to write down the things your partner says to you. If your partner threatens the child or you or threatens to cut off access to the child, if you should leave her, write all those things down. Share those things contemporaneously, as they say, with people in your support network, with friends and family, and with the counselor you'll be seeing. Really sorry. This is a terrible position to be in. You should dump the motherfucker already, but you need to do it in a careful and conscientious way so as to protect this child and the best interest of this child. And I think it's in the best interest of this child that you try counseling, not to save the relationship, but to wind it down as peacefully as possible. Um, I'm 33, female, living abroad. And I have a question about a classmate. So me and my friends were mature students who just recently graduated um, with our master's degrees. and one of our classmates is sending us the, oops, sorry, I texted you that messages. So it happened to me once where it was about how him and somebody else are waiting for a third person to come to the bedroom. The, oops, sorry, ignore that. And he sent to another friend, um, another woman, asking a mysterious person something a little bit more salacious and then saying, oops, sorry about that message. So then most recently, he sent it to a third of our classmates who he just sent a photo of himself wearing women's underwear with, of course, the message, 
sorry, please ignore. And that's the most recent. It's been going on for about a year and a half or so now. And we're just wondering, how do we respond to this? So far, we've been ignoring it. I sent one little message back that said, ha ha, you know, sorry, I'm not going to be joining you in the bedroom or something. But it seems to become kind of a trend and is getting a little bit weird and a bit, and it's escalating a bit. And we're just wondering, what's the best way to respond if we should respond at all? And if, is this dangerous behavior? To send one stray text or sext message like that just once may be regarded as carelessness. Continue to send stray text messages like that? Yeah, you're doing that shit on purpose. I once sent a text to a family member that wasn't intended for that family member. And I promise you, I have never made that mistake again. I am so hypervigilant when I text people now, particularly if I am including an image because that was such a searing, scarring experience. And it wasn't a picture. It was just a stray thought. This asshole is doing this on purpose. You all know he's doing this on purpose, and he's relying on your sense of decorum and this natural human sort of empathetic instinct not to embarrass or humiliate someone else, which allows people who are dirtbags to be manipulative shits, to do things that embarrass and humiliate us, but then we hesitate to be direct with them for fear of embarrassing and humiliating them. Well, I don't think this person can be embarrassed or humiliated. This person is sending messages out to female friends and colleagues intentionally, and you guys got to push back. Block the motherfucker. Block his number. Tell him that you are going to complain to his employer if he's using a work phone number, to his partner if he's partnered. This is not okay. What he's doing is harassment. And there is a pattern here. I think this actually can happen by accident, that you can send a text or you can send a pic to someone you didn't intend to send it to. That happens. That happens once. That doesn't happen again and again and again and again, from my own personal experience. So he's doing this on purpose, and you and everyone else that he's done this to needs to blow up at him about it, needs to scream at him about it, and needs to tell him that you have spoken all of you have spoken to each other and you know that this is a pattern with him and it's not an accident. And if there's someone that you can complain to about it, you are all going to go complain to that person about it. Again, is it a work phone number that he's sending these from? Is he using work email to send these things? Does he have a partner who's unaware that he's harassing their friends, their shared friends, their common friends with these messages? You say that he and his partner were looking for a third or waiting for a third does she know he's doing this to their female acquaintances? If she doesn't, I bet she would be interested to know. And then there might be consequences for this asshole. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 34-year-old straight male, and I've been having an issue with my libido. Uh, until I was about 28 or 29, I would get horny enough that I felt a strong need to masturbate at least once a day. I find now that I'm 34 I almost am never horny and I can go weeks without masturbating. To an extent, I'm no longer even interested in porn. Uh, in the moment with a partner, I can get turned on, but it's almost like I need to be activated. The only time I feel intensely aroused without that activation is when I smoke a ton of weed. 
another piece, I've been dealing with depression since I was a teenager, though in the past year I've been coming out of it. Is my brain permanently damaged due to the depression or is this age related and I should just accept this as my new normal? I'm wondering if there's anything I can do. If you're taking meds to treat your depression and congrats on coming out of it, most of those meds have side effects that can crater people's libidos. That's well known. It's also something to discuss with your therapist or your counselor, the doctor, whoever's prescribing these meds for you because you can try different meds. And some meds crater you know, person A's libidos and those same meds don't crater person B's libidos. So shifting from med to med until you find the one that helps to treat your depression without cratering your libido, that's a legitimate reason to shake up your meds, to try some new meds. If you're not taking meds, but you're seeing someone to talk about your depression, you need to talk about this if it distresses you. Does it distress you? You've noticed that you don't get as horny these days as you used to. You're 34 years old. You're not 16 years old. That is a normal part of aging. What you describe, though, doesn't sound typical. And please don't confuse normal and typical. It doesn't sound typical. Most men who are 34 years old still take healthy interest in porn, are still masturbating at a pretty regular clip. You aren't. The question for you is, are you happy? Is this distressing you? The fact that you are masturbating less, thinking about sex less, watching less porn than you used to. If this is just your new normal, if this is a, a plateau that you've landed on for a while and it's not distressing you, it's not a problem. But if it's distressing you, then it's something to talk about with your therapist. And if you're on meds, it's definitely something to talk about with your therapist. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've been listening for years. I'm a uh, 35-year-old married woman in a non-monogamous relationship. Um, my husband and I have been together for about 14 years, married for four. And our plan was to open up our relationship for about six months before we decide to start having, uh, trying to get pregnant. So everything was going great. Uh, I was dating around, and then I met this guy who was awesome. We had great chemistry. Um, we had a couple dates, and then we hooked up, and before anything got too far along, he told me that he has genital herpes. Um, so we continued to mess around, but we didn't do anything that would have exposed me, um, and I kind of told him that I would have to talk to my husband about it. And it was maybe some of the best sex I've ever had in my life. Um, so I was really hopeful that maybe we could at least keep doing um, the kind of stuff that wouldn't expose me to herpes. But I talked to my husband about it. He did not feel comfortable. He said that he wouldn't be able to stop thinking about whether I have it or not, and wasn't sure he trusted that we could do things that would protect me. It also, uh, there's the added complication of if I did get it, it would really mess up our plans to try to get pregnant because I would not want to expose my husband to it. And so we couldn't have unprotected sex um, for a while while I was most contagious. So, um, We've kind of decided that I'm not going to see this guy anymore, but I really keep thinking about 
him and how good the sex was. And I'm uh, pretty sad about it. So I don't know if I just need to get over this or if there's anything else I can say to my husband that might make him feel more comfortable or if it just really is a bad idea and I should move on. Um, I know you have talked about herpes a lot on the show and I understand that it's really not that big a deal and that there are, you know, reasonable risks you can take and ways that you can try to protect yourself. But the stakes feel kind of high in this situation. If you're using condoms, if this guy who did the right thing and disclosed to you that he has herpes is taking Valtrex, Valacyclovir, to suppress his outbreaks, um, that also makes him less infectious. Your odds of contracting herpes from him are very, very low. You say you're having six months come springa before you decide to get pregnant with the husband and you guys have opened up your relationship for a little bit of play and adventure before the big lockdown of pregnancy and having an infant in the house. If you're sleeping with other people, if your husband is sleeping with other people, the odds that you're sleeping with other people who have herpes and know it and didn't disclose it, or you're sleeping with other people who have herpes and don't know it and therefore can't disclose it, are very, very high. So your husband's being a little irrational. But people, when it comes to risk, can be irrational. And your husband wants to eliminate the risk he knows about, which is that this guy that you're interested in, that you had this good sex with, poses some risk to you. Now, herpes can present some risk to the fetus during pregnancy. It is very uncommon for an infant to contract herpes during childbirth. 30, 40% of women have herpes. Only 0.1% of infants contract neonatal herpes. The drugs that are used to treat herpes in adults who aren't pregnant make it highly unlikely for a woman to pass herpes on to the infant. And it poses most risk to a fetus if a woman contracts herpes during the third trimester of her pregnancy. All things you don't have to worry about if this is a six-month come spring and then you guys are going to close your relationship up again when you start trying to get pregnant. But what do you say to your husband? He wants to control for and eliminate the risk that he knows about as opposed to the risks that he's unaware of, the risks posed by your other sex partners or some other guy you might go find in place of this guy, the risks posed by the women that he might be having sex with right now who either aren't disclosing for fear of rejection, for fear of the stigma and shame that exists out of all proportion to the actual impact of herpes, or not disclosing because they don't know they have herpes, which most people who have herpes don't know. So what do you do? Well, what do you say to your husband that he will allow for this? You can get online. You can read everything that's out there about herpes. You can ask this guy if he's taking Valtrex or one of the other drugs that suppresses outbreaks and also makes someone much less infectious. You can use condoms. You can use female condoms, which provide a little bit more protection because herpes can be passed through skin-to-skin contact, not just genital contact. So some of the things that you're already doing with this guy may have posed some risk. If you were smushing genitals together, even if you weren't having intercourse with or without condoms or other latex barriers. But in the end, you may not be able to convince your husband to allow this. And sometimes in an open relationship, you have to prioritize your primary partner's feelings. 
And at times that means prioritizing even your primary partner's irrational feelings because your husband's comfort with openness and with your other partners and yours with his really does have to be paramount. It has to be your first concern. And there are other guys out there that you could get with. But if you want to take another run at the husband, a convo about latex, a convo about Valtrex, and a convo about the risks you're actually running, both of you, and the fact that most people who have it don't know and therefore aren't necessarily taking steps to protect their partners because they don't know they need to, and that a lot of people who have it don't disclose. And penalizing people who do disclose and then do take the steps that they can to protect their partners doesn't incentivize disclosure or people taking those steps that they can to protect their partners. And worst case scenario, if you do contract herpes, there are drugs. And most people have one outbreak and then never have another one. And in most people's lives, it's not that big a deal, which is why so many people out there who have it don't know they have it. Hi, Dan. I have a question about my responsibility while uh, dating someone in a don't ask, don't tell open relationship. So I've been seeing this guy for a couple months and he's sort of here just for the summer um, in my state just for the summer. He lives out of state. He has a longtime girlfriend who he lives with um, out of state. And he told me when we met that they had an open relationship. I sort of asked him a little bit more about that um, as someone sort of interested in the different uh, ways non-monogamy looks. Um, And he explained to me that it's a don't ask, don't tell relationship. He just does his best to kind of keep it out of her face all good, whatever. So anyway, we keep hanging out. Um, and he has some friends in the state that I live in. And so a couple of times we sort of overlapped with the friends and every time we overlap, he gets super squirrely and weird. And, um, it like sort of makes these weird comments to me about like, Oh, I don't like PDA and that kind of thing. As if he doesn't want his friends to have any idea that we're sleeping together, which is also fine. These friends don't know his partner super well. I think they do overlap from time to time. But I guess I'm wondering, do you think this means that it's maybe not a don't ask, don't tell relationship? Maybe she's not as aware of it as he thinks she is. And I guess I wonder what my level of kind of responsibility and digging into that um, and trying to figure out if that's accurate or not, I have as the sort of other person um, in this situation. Anyway, just curious what your thoughts are. Thanks. A lot of people who are in DADT, don't ask, don't tell, open relationships are invested in what's known as being socially monogamous. They want to be perceived to be monogamous by friends, by family, by neighbors, by coworkers. And engaging in PDA with your piece on the side, with your piece for the summer, with your secondary partner in front of mutual friends isn't just potentially a form of telling because they might ask her about this other woman, but it could be a violation of the, you know, mutual investment in socially monogamous perceptions. So it makes a kind of reasonable, rational sense that he might not be comfortable engaging in PDA with you in front of mutual friends, not just because they might blab to her, but because it violates that whole let's maintain the facade of being sexually monogamous aspect of the DADT or the open relationship. Particularly, a lot of straight people are very invested in social monogamy, being perceived to be monogamous, even if they're not. So his discomfort with PDA is not in and of itself 
proof that he's lying to you about being in a DADT relationship. That said, it's a lot easier to lie to someone about being in a DADT relationship. It's a lot easier for people who are cheating on their partners to bamboozle someone with, yeah, it's totally okay for me to sleep with other people, but they're never allowed to find out. I have to be incredibly discreet, almost as discreet as someone who's cheating. And in a way, a DADT relationship is a kind of permissible cheating. And it involves almost hardwired into the agreement, a little bit of deception and a little bit of lying. If you have a don't ask, don't tell relationship and you're going to get together with your piece on the side and your partner out of town or in town asks you where you are, they've in a sense told you in advance that they'd rather be lied to a white lie than to be told straight up the truth. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable with DADT relationships. The dissembling that isn't at the heart of it, because it's still an honest, open relationship, but the dissembling that makes it possible. So if you're uncomfortable, if you're worried that you're being played, that you're being lied to in addition to his girlfriend being lied to, you can drill down on that. Tell me why I can't touch you in front of these people. If you're in an open relationship and it's DADT, how is being publicly affectionate in front of these folks who don't spend that much time with your girlfriend in violation of your DADT arrangement? And then see what he says. And you may hear, my girlfriend doesn't want anyone to know that we are open. She wants people to believe that we are monogamous, including all of her friends. Don't embarrass me in front of my friends is often something someone who's agreed to a DADT relationship tells their partner. Don't embarrass me in front of my friends. I won't embarrass you in front of your friends. So what you perceive to be evidence of a violation could from another angle and could potentially legitimately be his efforts to honor the agreement he's made with his girlfriend. Hey, Dan, I'm 23 years old, calling from the East Coast. I'm a cis woman that's been in a relationship with a cis man for three years. And I have some social media woes that might be petty, and I want to hear your thoughts on them. So my partner is super active on social media, especially on Instagram. Posts a lot about his work, a lot about his goals, a lot about you know, whenever he has cute pictures of himself and it's a great Instagram page. Like I remember being on Tinder, that's where I saw him and looking at his Instagram and really being like, wow, this, this dude's pretty cool. And ever since we started dating, um, we've gone to a lot of places together and took a lot of pictures together and none of the pictures really show me. Like he'll post a picture and it'll be like me giving my back or me just like not really in the frame but he'll talk about he even posted a picture with my dog um when he came to visit my parents in my hometown but never posted a picture about me and post pretty much weekly so this bothers me and then one time the only time I ever posted a picture of both of us together was when we went to a trip uh, we left the country and took some pictures. His mom expressed to me wanting to see pictures. And when I posted them, he erased them. So after that, naturally, found out that he cheated on me pretty much the month that I posted the pictures. So it hurt a lot. He still has expressed wanting and showed me with his actions that he wants to stay together. 
And we've been talking about being open, particularly me, because I'm bisexual and he hasn't gone down to me in seven months and I want some of that. But I'm still not ready for him to see other people. I don't know if that's me being too selfish. Is it too petty to be upset about these social media things? Or does it reflect the larger issue, which is his lack of being able to be in a committed, loving relationship? Instagram is his dating app. It's how you found your way to him or you found your way to his Instagram profile pretty quickly after finding him on some other app. And it's what lured you in. I know a lot of people who are in committed, stable, loving, healthy relationships who met via Instagram. And everything that you've said in this call makes it clear that your boyfriend is shaking the Instagram tree. He is putting himself out there on Instagram and interacting with other women in the hopes of getting into their pants. And so it would be inconvenient for him to have a girlfriend who's part of his public profile on his Instagram page. Even you posting a picture of him, he deleted that link. He deleted his name from it, deleted his handle from your Instagram post. That's something that you can do on Instagram. Somebody else puts you up on Instagram. They at you. You can go on Instagram and remove that app of yourself. It's a good feature. And he did that because come on, open your eyes. He did that because he doesn't want any of the other women that he's talking with on Instagram to know that you exist because he wants to be perceived as single and available, even if technically he isn't, or you don't think he should be, but he is. Don't be naive. I know you're young, but you're being kind of willfully naive or obtuse about this you need some girlfriends you need some girlfriends that you can talk to not shitty girls who want to pour poison in your ear and aren't underminers but girls with some common sense girls that you can bat these things around with who can say to you honey (laughs) girlfriend he's a player he's a player that might be all right you say you're talking about possibly having an open relationship what's on the table or what you're thinking about right now is an open relationship for you, but not for him because you are by, but he's already keeping his options, if not his legs open. And I think seeing as you're both young and you both have a lot to learn, you particularly that you might want to just end this relationship and move on a little wiser than you were before you got into this relationship. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about blowjobs. When I first heard the term blowjob, I did not know what that meant. So I ran and asked my older brother, Eddie, and he told me it was when a man blew into a woman's vagina to inflate it and that a man had to do that before he could get his penis in there. To this day, I think about that. That's the mental image that leaps to mind first whenever I hear someone say blowjob, despite all the years and all the blowjobs. Jacqueline Novak has been thinking about blowjobs for a long time, too. She's a stand-up comedian that you've seen on HBO, Comedy Central, The Tonight Show, and more. And she has a new hit show running in New York City, Get On Your Knees, the show that wrestles with the meanings of blowjobs. Hey, Jacqueline, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Hey, thank you for having me. I love Uh, that story. (laughs) It's crazy, right? Like, Eddie, Eddie, tell me. And, like, this is literally what I think of every time I think of a blowjob is – that moment when a man in opposite sex, straight sex has to blow up a woman's vagina to get his dick in there. I don't know how straight people do it. <laughs> um, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, I always, I feel like the image of a blowfish still kind of informs my initial imagery. Like I just feel yeah, there's something about blowing up more than blowing on that it still gets its way in there. 
Yeah, I remember oh, the other thing I heard later about blowjobs when I was a kid on the playground was you don't blow, you suck. But so why is it a blowjob? Con- but, but, but first, con- congrats on the show. It's a hit. There's some debate as to whether Get On Your Knees is an evening of stand-up or an evening of theater. So is it a set or is it a play? You just settle that. <laughs> um, well, I like to think that, or I guess it depends on who I'm talking to. If, if it's the theater snobs, I like to say it's a play about a woman doing stand-up comedy. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that's, if that's working. Um, it's either, I guess, a solo show, um, a comedian doing a solo show. Um, well, set or play, we'll, we'll put that aside. There is something you do take a position on, though, which is cock. You are anti-cock. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the, maybe the word I what I like to say is that I'm trying to restore um, the penis to an authentic sort of dignity that I think, you know, words like cock and all that those um, imply uh, get in the way of. So, so like I say in the show that people, a lot of people don't like the word penis. They think it's not sexy. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and cock in theory should be sexy and, and seems like the sexy word and that sort of strong word and all that. And I, I, I sort of say that when I look at a penis and see a penis and call it a cock, I'm, I'm humoring it on some level. And so it's actually not <laughs> true respect. I'm like worrying about its feelings. I'm telling it what I think it wants to hear. And so I'm like true. Hot, I could only have an authentically true hot interaction with a penis. If, you know, if calling it like I see it <laughs> uh, and that was okay. And how do you see it? I see it um, as a very tender object. Um, and I, you know, I spend quite a bit of time talking about this on the show, but it's like, you know, that things like ideas like the rock hard boner that I was essentially raised on, you know, and, and kind of cling to despite my experience, even of a rock hard boner. Uh, it's mm-hmm. that it's, you know, for example, not actually rock like, right. I mean, it's, I know it's, it's hyperbole, but I feel like with all the language of the, of the cock, it's all sort of hyperbole. And then it's like internalized and we all just think it's true. So, so my, my, I see the cock as this kind of, um, kind of tender figure that has a, an artistic kind of, eye. Uh, you know, it responds to stimuli, it sort of fills with inspiration and it's kind of a floral sort of, it sort of blooms more than it erects. Uh, it's that, it's that kind of, it's a feminizing, I think of the, of the penis as part of my humor of it. A lot of language around men's genitalia seems to be in denial about how vulnerable men and their genitalia actually is. Like your dick is hanging around outside of your body. You know, we talk about balls like balls equals tough when actually balls, you know, you tap them and a guy's on the floor. And Completely. an erect dick can break. An erect dick can bruise. If you've ever, you know, had rough sex and slapped an erect dick, that like really hurts a guy. It's not a battering ram and it's not a sledgehammer. It's it's soft and squishy, even when erect and, and vulnerable. Yes. yes. Now this is, this is, <laughs> this is, this is my message. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like, and, and that it should be okay. You know what I mean? Uh, obviously. So it is what it is. And, and it's just like, it's never hot to me to be sort of in a state of denial. One of the things that, uh, that I've read in reading the reason I haven't been able to see the show because I live in Seattle and I haven't gotten to New York. So forgive me. Um, I'm good, tempted to get on a plane and come see it because it does sound like my kind of theater. <laughs> um, is that it dawned on you the first realization that you were expected at some point to give a blowjob was when you were 13. Like, you're, oh my God, this is something I'm going to have to do. 
And my first realization was that this was what I was like. This is, you know, when I realized I was gay, this is uh, this thing, this mm. cocksucker, this thing that I had been called because mm. other kids perceived my homosexuality before I even knew what the fuck it was, that I was that. Do you think our, you know, it's our experiences of this are, are different. Like this is what you're going to have to do. This is mm. what I was. Mm. And yet yeah. blowjobs are what's expected of women. They define gay men to, to, to this extent, at least in the popular imagination. But but how did blowjobs loom over you? For me, it got all mixed up with my identity. Did it get mixed up with your identity as a woman? So in the early kind of hearing about it, I would say at 13 versus what, what you're saying with the identity, which is, which is really interesting. Um, I think it was more like, oh God, that sounds difficult. I don't understand the mechanics. Like, I don't understand how you could put this thing in your mouth, like where it's going to go and how you're not going to just like bite down on it or, you know, whatever. Right. That, that was a real something. Okay. You like boys. Well, then you're, this is, this is one of the things on the menu. The, the ways it loomed over me primarily were, I don't see how it works. And then, and then second, I'll look and feel stupid while attempting it. Um, because, It'll, I'll be struggling to figure it out in the moment. And I hate that, obviously. I like, I'm like someone that, you know, if I could, I would like prefer to practice singing inside my head, like literally, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, like I hate learning on the job. So, uh, <laughs> so there was that fear, you know, the initial, the initial, um, and then I think later on, and this comes up in the show, it's like, so I really was questing after, uh, figuring out how to, how to do it, do it, you know, confidently in that sense, kind of just like, like I felt about almost everything, getting good grades, SATs, just like another thing to to conquer and feel like I was um, good enough or something. And then later on, I, you know, as a result of that, those early efforts felt like, you know, felt not afraid of it and felt the, the feeling of not being afraid to do something. And, and being someone on the other side of a thing where you could tell someone else, no, you just, you do it and it's fine. And then I experienced, it's almost like then I would say as a, you know, a young woman, let's say in college or whatever, then I experienced the kind of all ideas of, you know, being on your knees, so to speak, or blowjobs as kind of like inherently degrading or kind of like a, you know, something you wouldn't want your parents to know that you did or something. Right. And it's like, it's like, it kind of had that, that was sort of the feeling I got almost more in college and adult life than I even felt in high school. Like, I felt like, I felt like we were all relatively sex positive in high school. And then I like, really, I went off in the world and was shocked that like other young people even seemed kind of like, like I remember in a writing class in which I'd written something about blowjobs that related to something that's in the show now. It was like literally a guy, like a young <laughs> conservative, like student like made a blowjob face of me, like just like in Boogie Nights, like they do to Heather Graham. Like I was like, for real, man, like you're a college student and you're like <laughs> shocked by like the idea of a blowjob enough where you're like making a blowjob face of me in a creative writing class where we're like exploring like the personal is political. <laughs> do you remember the first one you gave? Yeah. Have you invited him to the show? <laughs> no, although... um you know, I, I, I think I think maybe some of my early boyfriends have caught like wind of sort of jokes that may or may not be about them. And, and there's a few, you know, a few details I've combined or, obs- or obscured. But I do go into the like for, first basically two blowjobs in my life in the show. And were they positive experiences? 
you know, I shouldn't have made that assumption. Like, invite the guy to the show. I was just kind of joking, but like a lot of women's oh, no, no, no. and young women's first experience with oral <laughs> totally. sex aren't positive. No, no, no. And I for, I literally, like, one second after you ask the question and I start talking, I forget the question and, and I'm already, like, t- tangent. So uh, what I was going to say was I haven't invited them just because, you know, what's the point kind of of uh, I'll, I'll be conscious of it. But, but the other night I was doing the show and I became sort of convinced or at least looking at this guy in the front row who was sort of averting his eyes in a way that was different. Usually people don't really avert their eyes, even though it's whatever the subject matter they're, you know, they're watching the show. And there was just something when I was sort of glancing in his direction, he would avert his eyes. And I started to think like he looks familiar. And then I was starting to try to do the math. If he could be one of my boyfriends from like high school, like could his appearance have changed in this way where now you know, this is him. And I, <laughs> I spent the whole show. I even like slightly tweaked my performance of lines that I essentially give to his character. <laughs> Knowing what I know like, of people psychologically, I, I, I almost could guarantee you that if a, someone that you'd actually given a blowjob to came to your show, they'd sit in the back row, not the front row. Right. You would think so. But I was starting to think this guy's so clueless, at, like in this, in this kind of capacity that I could see him just getting front row tickets, like, cause he's like a guy that likes to get front row tickets. I, I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the, my experiences were fairly positive. They they were they were not dissimilar from when I went to summer camp and I had a lot of anxiety about getting up on the water skis, as it was called. Like, you know, I mean, it was just similar to that. It was like a lot of anxiety about it, like some failure, and then like, oh my god, I did it. You know, it was it was, uh-huh. it was that that was the early experience. It was extreme thrill at like successfully doing it, and then also feeling kind of like, oh yeah, like this isn't. It isn't degrading. Yeah, this isn't degrading. This is like interesting and fun. And, and um, I remember distinctly feeling at the time, like, and this sounds really obvious, but almost as a high school student thinking about sort of the perceptions of parents, I was like, I'm not stupider now that I've given a blowjob. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it, in my mind, it almost seemed like the parents would think you were like, oh, you're like a dumb slut or something. Uh-huh. And it was like, this is not erasing that. You know, I remember a teacher once being like, I knew a girl, you know, I had a student who was, who was really smart, just like you. And she could have, she could have been really great at this or that, but, but she got caught up with all these boys and, you know, and I don't want that to happen to you. And it was like this kind of message of going down the path of being like, literally like sexually active in any way as mm-hmm. the opposite of getting good grades. It's really annoying. The first time I gave one, what didn't happen that I worried might happen wasn't that I would get dumber. Or that people would think I was just slut. There was no bolt of lightning. God didn't appear in the sky, nor did my dead grandparents materialize at the foot of the bed. All things that I had been kind of worried about. I remember walking down the street after being at this guy's house all night, just looking up in the sky and thinking, all right, I'm the wow. same. Nothing changed. Yeah, yeah. We're I'm good. the same. It's so huge. I'm going to do that again. Um, quickly before we go, something I've noticed we don't get a lot of questions about blowjobs around here. We kind of looked around uh, in the calls to see if we could yeah. toss you a question. Uh, well, oral sex was kinky 50 years ago. It was regarded you know, right. as perversion. It's technically sodomy. It's condemned by the Catholic Church right, for straight right. people. In the same terms, they condemn <laughs> gay sex for gay people. It comes standard these days. But what I've noticed doing my job right. is that it seems to drop off, that people are really into inhaling the dick of somebody they've just met or somebody that they're get catching feelings mm. for but once they live together once you know a few <laughs> years in you're not so hungry for your partner's co- or pardon me dick anymore <laughs> their vulnerable little flower like 
pistol of a penis. Uh, pistol not in the gun sense, pistol in the flower sense. Of course, of course, you, yeah. You're just not inhaling <laughs> that dick anymore. Have you noticed yeah, that to be yeah. true? Here would be my my personal take. Would be part of the thrill, um, in, you know, theory kind of of the blowjob uh, with a new person would be this kind of like. Look what I can do for you. Yeah, okay, I, think, awesome. I think. Yeah, I think it's performative, right? There's like mm-hmm. a performative aspect that's, that's, and then also the like, if it's someone you don't know, then you're you're experiencing their boundaries or their like wall of like <laughs> identity, and so it's almost like the blowjob literally by like someone's extremely vulnerable genitals being in your mouth. It is a full crossing of the boundary of one's self-protection, I guess. You know what I mean? Like there's like a risk there in that way or, or something that's very mm-hmm. embodied. And-, and it's a near stranger at that point. And risk is hot and, and danger is sexy. And you, it's difficult to replicate risk, danger, sex later in a relationship when there's intimacy and familiarity. Uh, really quickly, b- before we let you go, Get On Your yeah. Knees is a New York Times critic's pick. What made you think yeah. the critics at the New York Times are going to love this blowjob show when you were working on it? <laughs> um, I thought, well, you know, they'll come there, maybe they'll they'll be doubting it, and then they'll be delighted by my sort of obnoxious, pretentious tendencies that it's like I get to be as sort of annoying and literary as I want because the subject matter is blowjobs. I feel like gives me permission to go in the other direction. So I think there's like some surprise that the show is kind of like a little nerdy in that way. I think that's, I think that's what appeals to them. Get on your knees at the Cherry Lane Theater through August 18th. If you're in or near New York City, you want to get to it. It's a big hit. And it's extended, I heard? Yes. Yes. It's going to uh, start up at the Lucille Lortel on August 28th. So we'll have some more chances to get tickets. That's awesome. Congratulations on the show, Jacqueline, and thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about it. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female. I live in Europe, and I'm in a happy, long-distance, open relationship. I've been listening to your show for years, but I haven't heard you talk much about relationships that involve two men and a woman. I don't know, maybe I've somehow missed all those calls. But I've realized this is kind of my ideal scenario, like a close, even live-in relationship with two predominantly straight guys. I have a super high libido, and often when I have sex with someone, it's just not enough, and I want another dick in me again. Who doesn't? It seems like the two girls with one guy sort of setup seems to be by far the most common kind of thruple that I've heard exist. So I'm wondering, is it possible? Do relationships like this exist? Are there straight guys who'd be willing to openly share a wife? And how do I find them? (laughs) Are there any listeners out there who live with this kind of arrangement? And how does it work? I've looked on through some apps, but mainly found hetero couples looking for a female unicorn. I thought the best way might be to start dating a guy and see if he has a close friend who could be game. And even then, do such guys exist? Or is this just a pipe dream? And am I just being greedy and fooling myself that two guys could ever be into me at the same time? (laughs) Do such guys exist? Yes, absolutely. I know of two such guys, Geronimo Frias and Kenneth Play, both of whom are dating Karen Ambert. And I know about them because the New York Times wrote about them in the style section this weekend. Polyamory works for them. Having multiple partners can mean more pleasure, but it's not always easy 
by Alice Hines. You might want to go look that up. You can hear people talking about polyamory. Also, a lot of people of color. It was really wonderful to see a story in the New York Times about polyamorous relationships that didn't end up in the San Francisco Bay Area and talking to a bunch of white people. A lot of people of color profiled in this piece. And that was, again, good to see. So this can work. These kinds of throuples, V-shaped polyamorous triads where one person is dating one guy and she's also dating that other guy, but those guys aren't necessarily dating each other. That is a thing. That is a thing that exists in the world. And enough of it exists out there that the New York Times style section has recognized it as a trend. So you can make this happen for yourself, but it's going to require a lot of effort. Thirds are called unicorns for a reason. They're hard to find. Mythical beasts. And while it's true that most of the triad throuples you hear about are one man and two women or three guys, there are women out there with two boyfriends. You're going to have to ask the universe for what you want in order to get it. Date guys and tell them when you get to that stage of dating where you're talking about the future you would like for yourself and the ideal sort of relationship that you would like to be in, that ideally you would like to be in a polyamorous triad with two men. Guys who aren't open to that or guys who aren't willing to think about that for you will run screaming. Guys who stick around are either going to be open to that idea or willing at least to consider it for you. Will you find it? There are no guarantees. There are people out there looking for one person that they can partner with who never find that one person. So doubling the number of people that you want to find doubles your complications, your potential problems, doubles your odds. But you'll never find it if you don't go looking for it. Can't have it if you don't ask for it. And in answer to your question, yeah, there are people out there. There are people like Karen and Kenneth and Geronimo who are doing what you want to do. So it is possible. Again, the story is polyamory works for them. Having multiple partners can mean more pleasure, but it's not always easy. By Alice Hines, last weekend's New York Times. Hi, Dan. So I was in the park talking to my mother on the phone about my husband, who we are experiencing some difficulties right now, and the subject of divorce came up. Well, shortly after that, I got a text message from him, and he brought up me wanting possibly a divorce. And that's never come up before in our relationship. So I know, I guess, somebody he knew was around us and overheard it. And yes, I know private conversations in public are not private, but nonetheless, it was totally out of context. And the reason why I was having it in public was because my husband is always at home. So my question is, should I confront my husband about this? Should I bring it up? Do I like get out in front of it or do I just let it go? I don't know how you avoid the subject. Someone overheard you talking about divorce in public with your mother, and that got back to your husband, somebody that he knows overheard you having that conversation and ratted you out. How do you ignore that? You don't have to confront him, but you do have to address it. And you don't need to ask him who ratted you out. That's irrelevant. You need to address the issues that brought you to a point where you're so unhappy in your marriage that you're talking about divorce loudly in public with your mom. Address those issues. It really is secondary how it got back to your husband. Of course, if you do manage to stay together, you're probably not going to want the person who ratted you out 
to remain in your intimate circle, not somebody that you're going to feel comfortable or safe with if you manage to save your marriage. But right now, that person's name is irrelevant. Right now, what you need to address are the reasons why you're thinking about leaving him, why you were talking about divorce with your mother. And the best place to address those issues is on the couch in a couple's counselor's office. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a bi-leaning straight guy, which is probably a topic for a future call. And I'm in my 50s and living in the Midwest. My 16-year-old son just announced that he's bi. And as I told him, I'm relieved and glad that he seems to have a much clearer sense of self than I did at his age, for certain. I have two questions, both related to safety. The first question is about safety during self-exploration. One of your recent episodes made a point about not using any objects for anal stimulation if they don't have a flared base. It reminded me of some of the questionable objects I used for my own experimentation as a teenager, some of which could have gone wrong, but thankfully didn't. I've been considering providing my son with a safe tool, but then thought this might just unnecessarily embarrass him. A friend of mine suggested giving my son a gift card so he could order a tool while maintaining his privacy. In addition, I'm not sure how to navigate the conversation with his mom, my ex. She and I are on very good communication terms, and I don't want to blunder about in a way that would strain that. But I also don't want to make a decision uh, for him without having talked to her first. Your recommendations about how to approach the conversations and any tips regarding tools and lube would be appreciated. My second question is about health safety. My ex and I are revisiting a decision not to administer the HPV vaccine. We're not anti-vaxxers, but had some concerns about the specific vaccine. Do you have an opinion on this that would help our revived conversation about the topic? Also, should this kid be on PrEP? My son is a really sweet kid, bordering on innocent even. But while his mom and I think he's probably just holding hands at the dance, it's possible, you know. In addition to the gift card recommendation that I want a second, don't drag your son down to the sex toy shop. Don't present him with a flared base butt sex tool. Get him that gift card. If he wants a butt toy, he can find a butt toy. I would present him with Drawn to Sex, The Basics by frequent guests on the podcast, Erica Moen and her husband, Matthew Nolan. It is a very approachable, very readable sex ed manual in cartoon form for young people. And it includes sections on anal sex. And it is very queer positive. It's very bi positive. And he'll find information in there about other things that might be relevant to a 16-year-old bisexual boy, like not just prep, but birth control, like cunnilingus, like vaginal intercourse and being not just with partners with penises, but partners with vaginas. Remember, he came out to you as bi. Keep those lines of communication open. If there's a download you want to have with him, if there's something that you think that he needs to know, and I think the conversation that it's really important for parents of 16-year-old boys to have with them is less about flared-based butt toys and more about consent and more about active consent, have that conversation and make sure that he knows that he can always come to you with questions. But you don't want to rush at him with butt toys. I feel like that's a little inappropriate. That may make your son feel a little bit uncomfortable. Your hyper interest in whether or when or how he's beginning to experiment with anal pleasure or anal penetration. So resist the urge, dad to throw a dildo with a flared base 
at your son. Throw that gift card at him and throw Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan's book Drawn to Sex at him, which does cover the flared base basics and everything else he'll need to know about anal sex if and when he's ready to start having anal sex. As for whether he should get on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which will eliminate effectively his risk of contracting HIV if he has unprotected sex with other guys who might have HIV, impress upon him the need to use condoms, not just to protect himself from HIV, but to protect himself from other sexually transmitted infections out there. But yeah, familiarize him with PrEP. There may come a time when it's appropriate for him to go on PrEP, when he becomes sexually active with other males, when he has more than one partner, getting on PrEP might be a very good idea. Something for him to talk about with his doctor, not just with his dad. Hi, Dan. I've been with my husband for seven years, and I we are deeply in love. We are super compatible. Uh, sexually, I have a slightly more intense libido than he does, and we have had some openness in our relationship, but really, I really prefer to be with him. Um, the reason why I'm calling is because he does this thing in his sleep where he sort of just emerges out of sleep and is super, super horny and willing to do anything. And it's almost like a alter ego. Um and I can take advantage of it and, uh, you know, we can have a really, really good time. And then he kind of just like falls back into sleep um, and then doesn't remember anything in the morning. And I've taken advantage of it sometimes, but I don't always take advantage of it because I kind of feel weird. Like I'm like I'm taking advantage in a bad way. So I guess my question for you is, is this common? Is this something that people do? Is this um I don't know. Is it weird? Uh, what should I do? You don't mention how your husband feels about these middle of the night fuck sessions that he doesn't remember. Have you talked to him about it? Yeah, he just laughs about it. Okay, so there's no problem here then. You're not taking advantage of him. No, but it just feels weird. It feels like, well, I am taking advantage in, in a, <laughs> for better or for worse, right? But, but you know, but, but our, that's what our husbands are there for to some extent, to be taken advantage of consensually and in a way that strengthens the relationship and the bonds that exist. And so, yeah, yeah you're taking advantage. You know, I take advantage of Terry when he's horny. Uh, luckily for me, <laughs> he's not asleep when he's horny. And that would be something I would be concerned about addressing with him. You know, sexomnia is a thing. There are people out there who have sex in their sleep. And some people aren't bothered by that so long as they're not initiating sex in their sleep with someone who does not want to have sex with them. That's when it can get really problematic. There's been cases well, yeah. of sexual assault uh, committed by people who are fast asleep and some of them have been acquitted because there was no intent, right? There was just sexomnia and initiation and and – Bad shit, unfortunate shit. I don't want to. I don't want to dwell right, on right, that right. because that's not the case here. Your partner sometimes yeah. gets horny in his sleep, and you're there, and he is totally down with you seizing the advantage at those moments and fucking the shit out of him, or letting him fuck the shit out of you. Yeah, I think it's just what weirds me out about it is that is that there is no memory of it, so it's almost like just an experience for me. Which is weird because that's not how I think about sex. I think about sex as this transactional thing that hopefully is so great that you can even talk about it later mm-hmm. and replicate. Whereas this is just like, it's like, I don't know. It'd be like being in a self-driving car. You just don't <laughs> really know like well, where but, you're going. <laughs> but you can talk about it later because you can talk about it with him. You don't have to keep these encounters secret from your husband. You can share all the dirty details in the morning of all the dirty 
cockhound things he did with you in the middle of the night when he was sure sort of asleep. Oh, and I do. I do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I appreciate that you're being thoughtful about this. I, I don't want to discourage people with your particular problem from thinking about it, from wringing their hands a little bit, from checking in with their partners, making sure that their partners are okay with it and being okay with it yourself and figuring out a way that you can be okay with it yourself. If indeed you regard sex as a connection that you're forging, not necessarily transactional, but you want to feel connected to your partner and to feel connected to your partner, you'd like them to be conscious. Yeah. 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 And that's not setting the bar too high. Yeah. It's not the only sex you have with him, right? You don't only have no. sex when he's asleep. No, but it's, I, I'd say that it's the most uninhibited because, well, he c- couldn't be more uninhibited. It's like he's, it's like there's zero inhibitions, which is why this is so strange because it's not quite like that when he's awake. <laughs> um, <laughs> even talking about it's weird. It's like, a, a, yeah, like when he, when he, when he's, when, uh, yeah, when he's awake. When, when he's, he's loose it. When he's awake. Well, thank God that you're his partner and he is safe with you. And, and you welcome this contact. You know, again, there are people with sexomnia who initiate sex, even with partners that their partners do not want to engage in. And you guys click even when he's asleep. Yeah. And so that's great. And that clicking is not the problem. It's not even a problem. I was more so just curious about whether this was common and, um, whether you'd even heard about it before, obviously you have. <laughs> and so it was more of, it's, it's less of a problem, more of just a curious thing because I've talked about it with lots of my friends and nobody's ever experienced it other than me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the last thing I would encourage you to address with your partner, not to shame him about the sex he has with you when he's fully conscious, uh, but the fact that he's much less inhibited in the middle of the night when he may be dreaming or asleep and initiating sex with you, uh, you would like to get there when he's conscious and maybe, yeah. there, maybe there's a way there. Uh, we've already recommended pot on the show to somebody else going to re- recommend a little bit of pot for your partner, perhaps, you know, a, a mild edible, a puff, not blazed out of his mind, not near unconscious when he's trying to have sex with you awake, but something that can take the edge off his inhibitions because it, it, it would be really discomforting. I think to, to be with somebody who, the sex was better when they weren't awake for it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's and and we do we do smoke pot and we do. It's not that our, it, don't get me wrong. It's not that our sex is is inhibited terribly. It's just that like it's like I'd say I don't know somewhere around like fifteen percent more wild in the middle <laughs> of the night. And maybe that's also because it's inherently spontaneous because uh, it happens like it, it's the most spontaneous happens in a in a flash and then you're going and so. I'm not sure if we can ever, like, we never seem to have that exact spontaneity, but maybe mm-hmm. that's just because of the nature of waking up to that, right? Yeah, maybe. Well, I'm glad it, <laughs> I'm glad you two came together uh, into this relationship because it sounds like he's safe with you when he's asleep, and it sounds like you're down for him when he is also asleep but wanting to fuck you. Yeah, it's pretty great. With you. <laughs> yeah. So what could, you know, I I don't want to downplay the fact that this could be a problem in a different relationship or this could become a problem for you if it increases in frequency or it begins to happen at times when you are not particularly receptive and there's no way to shut it down. Sexomnia can definitely be a problem. It is not at the moment a problem for you guys. And I think you should address it as a problem if it becomes one, but not. And otherwise just take advantage. Enjoy. 
All right. I'll do that. Good luck. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a 20-year-old straight woman living in Bellingham, Washington, and I'm calling about an issue with my soon-to-be stepdad. My mom recently got engaged to her longtime childhood friend after 20 years of marriage. Both my mother and her fiancé are in their 40s and divorced with children who are either teenagers or grown and out of the house. Uh, upon the advice of my mom, I was messaging her fiance on Facebook about some legal issues that I'm going through. And although I have had very little interaction with this fiance and don't know him very well, he was super kind and knowledgeable. And after he had answered my questions, we began making like casual small talk about common interests, just getting to know each other a little, assumed to be stepdad and daughter. It was getting pretty late and it became clear that he was drinking a lot. Uh, to the point that his messages were either completely nonsensical or illegible. Um, I thought this was a little inappropriate and bizarre, but I was ready to brush it off and just say goodnight when he started sending me messages talking about how, uh, quote-unquote, cute and beautiful I was and how I should come over soon. So after he asked me to come over, however, he he said that he was out of line and apologized for it. That this man has never even been, like, mildly inappropriate or creepy towards me, and I really like him. And um, more importantly, I really like him for my mom. So I'm just wondering if this is even worth mentioning to her. This happened a couple months ago, so obviously I'm leaning towards no, but I'm just wondering if that's the most, most like, ethical way to handle this. I also don't want him to resent me for telling her and have that taint our relationship for the rest of their marriage. Yeah, I would just love some advice on this. Someone who would send inappropriate direct messages, text messages, to the daughter of the woman that he's about to marry is someone who has behaved inappropriately toward other women, other girls, at other times. Seems to me that your loyalty here lays not with this marriage and not with this man, but your loyalty lays first and foremost with your mom. And you should tell your mom what happened. Maybe what happened was out of character. Maybe he had a small stroke. Maybe he was drinking and took an Ambien. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Let's stop making excuses for this dude. And let's hold this dude accountable. And let's allow your mother, if she indeed wants to go through with this marriage, to do it fully informed. For her to marry him knowing not just what she knows about him, but also what you know about him. Right now, you know more about this man than your mother might. And if it comes out two, three, four years into this marriage, if they do marry, that this is a pattern with him, you're going to feel terrible that you were sitting on this and didn't say something. You're going to feel terrible if three or four years down the road, your stepfather has made inappropriate advances on your siblings, on nieces, your mother has siblings who have children, on other young adults in their orbit. And your mother, if it comes to that, probably would have wanted to know going in that this was a risk. Now, maybe you do risk her wrath. Sometimes people side with a romantic partner over a child who's leveling with them about something that they need to be leveled with about. That's a risk. But I think the greater risk is down the road, having to look your mom in the eye 
and tell her that you knew that you knew he was capable of this and you didn't say something because you wanted to save their marriage when what you really needed to save at that moment potentially was your mother. And maybe what will come out if there's a big sort of shitstorm after you tell your mother about this is that this is a problem when he drinks, that he says inappropriate things to people when he drinks. And the takeaway then is he shouldn't fucking drink. And maybe that's the condition that your mother can set to marry him, that he stop drinking because he behaves inappropriately or says inappropriate things to people when he's drunk. Does this disclosure, you going to your mother and telling her this, will it make your relationship with him awkward and strained and high conflict? Yeah, potentially. And then you know what you do? You know what you say to him? You asked me to forgive you when you behave this way toward me. And I thought about it. And I went and told my mother the truth and you guys have worked it out and now you're my stepfather and you're in my life and in my mother's life and you guys are making it work and she's forgiven you. You have to forgive me. If it comes to that, if you tell your mother has a big explosion with him, they patch it together and work it out. You didn't betray anybody. You didn't betray your mother. You didn't even betray him. You helped them get to a point where they're going to be able to have a relationship that works despite his manifest flaws and he should be grateful to you. But if it comes to that, and it might not, you might tell your mother and that might be it. This might be off. You might tell your mother and she might start asking questions of other relatives, other friends, and find out that this is indeed a pattern with him and not one she wants to live with. But if this was a big one-off mistake, if he took an Ambien or whatever the fuck happened, and he and your mother managed to work it out and stay together. He's not going to drink anymore. He's not going to take Ambien anymore. He's going to get the fuck off Facebook or whatever. And your relationship with him is strained. Well, that strained relationship may be a small price that you pay in order for your mother to have a better marriage. It's also something you can point out to him and say, look, I had to tell my mother what happened. My first loyalty was with my mother, obviously. And of course, you two worked it out. She forgave you. I forgive you. Now you have to let go of your anger. Not forgive me because I didn't do anything wrong. You have to let go of your anger or resentment at me for complicating your engagement. And if you can't do that, fuck him. You don't have to have a relationship with your stepfather if he indeed becomes your stepfather. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some tweets with and without tweets. If you listen to the Savage Lovecast backwards, it's just fake Dan Savage giving people terrible advice and causing them to enter problematic relationships, which is why you shouldn't listen to my program backwards. Thomas Carver tweets, I've got to disagree with the listener on the Savage Lovecast who suggested handcuffs to the woman with bondage anxiety. Those can hurt if you struggle against them. Instead, I'd suggest Velcro wristbands at Fort Trough has a great set. I want to second that. Handcuffs are terrible beginner bondage items for beginners at bondage because they can hurt your wrist. They can damage nerves. People have it in their heads that buying bondage gear is kinkier than buying handcuffs. And maybe that's true. Maybe it makes you look a bit more like a perv if you've got actual bondage gear, but you're less likely to hurt someone or get hurt yourself engaging in bondage play if you invest in some decent bondage gear. And handcuffs ain't it. 
Rebecca Goldstein tweets, call her with the boyfriend cheating on her on Grindr. Stop sleeping with homophobes. Closeted or not, A, what message are you sending to the gay people in your life by dating an outward homophobe? B, they will be a misogynist too because homophobia and misogyny are linked. Yes, indeed they are. Homophobia is misogyny's snot-nosed little brother, which is why I've long urged women not to date men who are homophobic because they don't just hate your gay friends, they hate you too. All right, if you want us to read your tweet on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, this is for the caller on the last episode whose boyfriend like blew up over a home improvement project, and uh, they've been together for four years. He's never done that before. Um, I just want to, it kind of reminded me of myself one time, uh, I was trying to fix our internet, and I yelled at my sister, and it doesn't make the behavior excusable, but I just realized that for some reason, that irritates the shit out of me, and I turned into a dick. Um, I apologized, of course, and, and I just told her. I started telling her every time I was trying to fix something technology-wise, please don't talk to me. Um, I'm going to be irrationally angry for the next half hour. So I don't know if he's done home improvement projects for them before, but maybe that's just his one thing that he could set off about. Because like I said, normally I'm pretty easygoing, and I never raise my voice to anybody. But for some reason, like it just pisses me off when I can't fix something. So... It could be just as simple as that if he's never shown it before. See if he says that that's just like his one thing he gets bad about. Hey, Dan, I had a quick problem with something that you mentioned in episode 667, where you implied that Lindsey Graham was only acting the way that he was because Trump or somebody had potentially blackmailing information on him. Um, I don't think Lindsey Graham is a victim that's being blackmailed into acting in a way that he doesn't want to act. I think Lindsey Graham opposed Trump briefly when he thought it was politically expedient and is now showing his true colors as a white supremacist who is victimizing others and is not the victim of a blackmail scheme and an otherwise decent person who would be doing good if not for the blackmail against him. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jacqueline Novak on Twitter at Jacqueline Novak. And get your butts down to the Cherry Lane Theater to see her show, Get On Your Knees. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.